Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, I'm the Chief Executive here. I'm also a proud member. And it's a pleasure to introduce our speaker today, the Director of the Penn State Earth, Earth System Science Center and perhaps the nation's leading climate scientist, a man who's been suggested as a speaker here for years and years, for whose presence we are deeply grateful, Dr. Michael E. Mann. Dr. Mann is considered a pioneer in researching the effects of human activity on the Earth's climate. In 1999, he and his colleagues published the now infamous hockey stick graph, depicting the impact of human activity on global temperature since the year 1400. For the last two decades, the graph has served as a focal point for some of the heated discussion surrounding the origins of global climate change. Proponents believe the graph illustrates the impact of human activity on the Earth. Critics argue the planet is simply undergoing natural temperature fluctuations that have occurred throughout its existence. Today, scientists worldwide are in large agreement that global climate change is occurring and that human activity plays a role. And a 2016 survey by Yale University suggests that 70% of Americans agree with that scientific consensus, not that their agreement matters all that much to scientific fact. But that widespread agreement has fueled efforts at the federal, state, and local levels to rein in the activity believed to contribute to climate change. Despite this, however, a strong faction of individuals have adopted an anti-science stance on global warming and taken steps to reverse or impede many of these efforts. The United States is the only country to reject the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, and federal, the federal administration has moved to repeal the Clean Power Plan, and the EPA's efforts to addressing climate change and climate science have also been curtailed. Through all of this, Dr. Mann has continued sharing why people should care about global climate change, including defending the scientific community by speaking out against the president's belief that climate change is, quote, a Chinese hoax. In his latest book, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy, he, along with Washington Post editorial car cartoonist Tom Tolles, combined humor and science to explain the impact of global climate change denial on our politics and our planet. For those of you joining us on WCPN, this forum will contain some images you won't be able to see, so you should join us online at cityclub.org while you stay tuned to WCPN. Dr. Mann received his undergraduate degree in physics and applied math from the University of California at Berkeley, a master's degree in physics from Yale, and a PhD in geology and geophysics from Yale University as well. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael E. Mann. Thanks very much, Dan. Thanks uh, to Stephanie and the others at the City Club for uh, bringing me here, and also my, my good friend uh, Harsh Matar for helping facilitate that as well. It's a real honor to, to speak here. Um, so uh, as Dan mentioned, we wrote this book, uh, Tom Tolles, Washington Post cartoonist, uh, who has been sort of weighing in on climate change and climate change denialism on the editorial pages of the Washington Post for years in the form of his brilliant cartoons. 
Uh, well, he and I decided that uh, it would be interesting to try to use those cartoons to tell the story about the science, the impacts, the politics, the way forward. Uh, we published this book, The Madhouse Effect, how climate change denial is <laughs> threatening the planet, destroying our politics, and driving us crazy. I always have to remember the order of those three things. Um, before the last presidential election. Um, so in a sense, uh, the book presaged what we're calling uh, the return to the madhouse, climate denial in the age of Trump. And that's really the theme of this lecture. Uh, first of all, you know, the first chapter uh, of the book uh, is you know, how does science actually work? Uh, because it's important to understand that. If you're going to understand how to uh, litigate this apparent dispute over climate change and its impacts, um, you need to understand something about how science works. Now, skepticism uh, is a critical thing in science. It's part of what Carl Sagan, the great Carl Sagan, described as the self-correcting machinery that uh, drives science towards an increasingly better understanding of the natural world. But rejecting mainstream science, consensus, the overwhelming consensus of the world's scientists based on the flimsiest of arguments that don't stand up to the slightest bit of scrutiny, um, that's not skepticism. Um, there are many who reject uh, the science, uh, comparing themselves to you know, Galileo railing uh, against the church, when in fact uh, they're really just cranks dressed up as Galileo, as depicted in this cartoon. Uh, let me quote, again, the great Carl Sagan. The fact that some geniuses were laughed at does not mean that all who are laughed at are geniuses. <laughs> they laughed at Columbus. They laughed at Fulton. They laughed at the Wright brothers, but they also laughed at Bozo the Clown. And for every Galileo, there are thousands of Bozo the Clowns. And too often, they have the megaphone uh, because uh, too often, uh, our media engage in what's sometimes called as false balance, or what I call the false objectivity of balance, which is to say you shouldn't treat the overwhelming consensus of the world's scientists versus a few cranks and fossil fuel industry-funded shills as if those are on an equal footing. And yet, too often, um, the issue of climate change is presented in our media as if it's a, a real debate between two equal sides. Truth doesn't lie halfway between science and anti-science, but uh, too often it's framed that way. Uh, and even the hallowed New York Times um, has at, at times engaged in sort of a false balance, uh, providing a forum to, to fringe viewpoints that simply are not supported uh, by the scientific evidence. So what about the scientific evidence? It's not we're not 100% certain really about anything in science. Um, so some people will say, well, you know, if you're not 100% certain, we shouldn't act. Um, yes, there's uncertainty in the science of climate change. There's uncertainty in the science of gravity. We've never observed a graviton. The, the, the unit, the fundamental particle of gravity, we've never observed one. So there are uncertainties in gravity. That doesn't make it safe to jump off a cliff. And yet there are those who would have us jump off the metaphorical cliff of not acting on climate change based on science that is similarly strong, that is similarly uh, well-established and, and uh, the overwhelming consensus of the world's scientists. Um, 
One of uh, our pet peeves is the way we often talk about climate change uh, and extreme weather events. Uh, often you'll hear people say, well, you know, you can't prove that that storm uh, couldn't have happened in the absence of climate change. It's sort of like the steroid-taking baseball player. You can't prove that my record-breaking home run in the ninth inning of that last game was due to the steroids. I might have hit it anyways. Well, that's, as the cartoon uh, denotes, that's a loophole through which you could lose a planet. Um, and the reality is that climate change is intensifying these storms. It's taking extreme weather events and making them more extreme and more damaging. Um, whether we're talking about Harvey, biggest flooding event on record, record sea surface te uh, temperatures means record amounts of moisture. Record amounts of moisture leads to record amounts of rainfall. Um, and that was the wettest event on record. Harvey. Irma, strongest storm ever measured in the central uh, Atlantic, in the open Atlantic, in the open Atlantic Ocean. Um, again, sea surface temperatures were very high. There's a relationship between sea surface temperatures and the upper intensity that a storm can reach. So maybe it's a coincidence that uh, during the last few years, um, during which global ocean temperatures have been at their all-time warmest, we've seen the strongest storm ever in the open Atlantic, Irma, the strongest storm ever on Earth that we've ever measured, Patricia, a few years ago in the Pacific. That's the strongest storm in on Earth and in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Strongest storm in the Southern Hemisphere, Winston, also happened during that time period. Uh, probably not a coincidence. Warming oceans means more intense hurricanes. Um, if you calculate uh, what the effect of the warming thus far should be on the maximum sustained winds of a hurricane, it turns out it corresponds to a roughly 10 mile per hour increase in wind speed for very strong Cat 4 and Cat 5 storms. Um, that's a 7% increase in wind speed, but the destructive potential of the storm goes as a third power of the wind speed. That's a 20% increase in destructive potential. That's not a small signal. That's not a subtle effect. It's one that we are seeing play out with these record damaging storms like Maria, which followed another monster storm that uh, devastated Puerto Rico. So why should we care? It's not just about polar bears and penguins. Uh, I care about polar bears and penguins. I want my daughter to grow up in a world that has the beauty and wonder of the world that uh, I grew up in. I think uh, that has to be part of our legacy to our children and grandchildren to not leave behind a degraded planet for them. Uh, but it isn't just about polar bears and, and penguins. As we've seen, it's about record strength storms, super storms that uh, are uh, wreaking unprecedented damage on our coastlines, unprecedented wildfires, droughts, floods, heat waves. That's the face of climate change, and it's no longer subtle. We are seeing it play out in real time now on our television screens, on our newspaper headlines. But there is still this denialism. As long as there are fossil fuels to burn, there'll be people willing to deny that climate change is real. It was the same playbook they used in tobacco. They're using it today with climate change. Um, and there's sort of this hierarchy to climate change now, these stages of denial, the first of which is it's not happening. Well, let's see, 2014 was the warmest year on record until 2015, which was the warmest year on record, until 2016, which was the warmest year on record. Good news, folks, 2017 was not the warmest year on record, only the second warmest year. Um, 
well, you know, maybe that's natural. You know, Stovetop temperatures change all the time, these two frogs say to each other as they're slowly being boiled. <laughs> um, well, actually, we calculated the likelihood of that happening due to chance alone. We published an article last year, um, and I could read the abstract to you, but I think uh, it's best to just quote the Discover Magazine article that described our key take-home conclusion. The record global warming streak of 2014 to 2016, a snowball's chance in hell that this was natural. Uh, we know it's us, folks. Well, okay, maybe it's us, but hey, it's self-correcting, right? Well, true, if several hundred feet of global sea level rise snuffing out all of our coal-fired power plants is seen as a self-correcting mechanism, then I suppose um, you know, returning our climate to the early Cretaceous over 100 years, um, probably not a good idea. Probably not a good idea. Um, well, okay, then it's a good thing. Melting ice sheets lift all boats after all, right? Well, it's not a good thing. But that is sort of the preferred stage right now. Um, Scott Pruitt, um, uh, some weeks ago, uh, made that argument. Uh, warming can help humans. Uh, global warming isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, global warming may help humans flourish. Now oh, it sounds great. Um, actually, global warming is good. EPA Chief Scott Pruitt, global warming may be a good thing. And I promise, that headline came after the original version of this slide on the it's a good thing talking point. It's a tried and true talking point. It's sort of uh, the preferred stage of denial, sort of the kinder, gentler form of denial. Oh, maybe it's happening, maybe it's due to us, but you know, um, it, it'll be good for us, right? Well, not unless, again, you think that unprecedented superstorms and floods and droughts and heat waves are a good thing. If you think that's a good thing, then I suppose climate change is a good thing. The final stage of denial then is, well, you know what? It's too late to do anything about it anyway. Um, well, the good news is it isn't. We actually published an article about a week ago in the journal Nature Geoscience. Um, there's, it's an uphill challenge. Basically, you know, our calculations and those of other groups, it's an uphill challenge to, to keep warming below one and a half degrees Celsius now, which um, developing nations, low-lying island nations have said would constitute catastrophic climate change for them. Uh, we can still do it, and we can certainly reduce our emissions fast enough to avoid warming the planet by more than two degrees Celsius, which is the basic Paris target that's often pointed to as the level of, of truly dangerous and, and potentially irreversible um, climate change. And, and we can still do it. It's not too late. Um, but there is a war on the science. Um, like the last Japanese soldier found uh, fighting World War II uh, some years ago, um, as long as there are fossil fuels to burn, there will be talking heads being paid money to deny the overwhelming scientific consensus. But they will become as irrelevant as the last Japanese soldier still fighting World War II. Now, when it comes to the denial of climate change, it is indeed the case that um, you know, hypocrisy, thy name, is climate change denial. And I've had some personal, uh, personal dealings, um, as uh, Dan alluded to um, in his comments. Uh, back in 2009, the uh, newly uh, elected uh, Attorney General of Virginia, Ken Cuccinelli, uh, otherwise known as the Cooch. Um, Tea Party Republican, um, 
came heavily funded by fossil fuel interests. Uh, as soon as he became attorney general, among his first acts was to try to subpoena all of my personal emails from the time I was at the University of Virginia to try to find, does this sound similar, get a hold of emails, try to cherry pick them, take them out of context, to uh, discredit somebody and to discredit the case for concern over climate change. If you can discredit Mike Mann and discredit the hockey stick, um, the entire weight of evidence for climate change rests on one 20-year study by three people, right? <laughs> no, you could get rid of the hockey stick, you could get rid of all the other studies that have affirmed it, and we have so many independent lines of evidence that tell us that climate change is real and human-caused, it wouldn't matter. But it's useful to try to take an icon and take down that icon, and, and that was really the goal here. Uh, well. Cuccinelli was uh, ultimately unsuccessful. The Washington Post at the time uh, wrote no less than five uh, editorials blasting uh, Ken Cuccinelli's witch hunt against me in the University of Virginia. And uh, their editorial cartoonist, who I did not know at the time, uh, Tom Tolles, weighed in on the matter not once but twice on the page of the Washington Post. This is my favorite, I have to say. That's Cuccinelli up in the judge's chair there and poor Galileo down below. He wants to see his emails as well. Um, I don't mind being compared to Galileo, I guess. Uh, well, Cuccinelli lost um, in this uh, bid. Uh, he, uh, it was really a technicality. In his 40-page filing to the court, he had forgotten to provide um, evidence of wrongdoing on my part. Uh, <laughs> so the court, court threw it out. He, of course, appealed to the state Supreme Court, uh, which ultimately ruled on the matter. Um, rejecting the case with prejudice, meaning they really don't want to see an attorney general ever come back to the court with something like this again. So we, we won that particular battle. Um, Ken Cuccinelli then ran for governor of Virginia in the next election. You'll forgive me if I decided to actively campaign with his opponent, Terry McAuliffe, because I understood the threat that Ken Cuccinelli represented. Um, and the people of Virginia understood the threat. Uh, that somebody has antipathy for science that doesn't conform to his political ideology, who will use his office to go after scientists whose findings might be inconvenient to him and the special interests that fund him. Um, Virginians decided they, they didn't think that was a good idea. He lost the race. Um, he went on to uh, work on an oyster farm on Tangier Island. This is an island in the Chesapeake Bay that is slowly succumbing to the effects of global sea level rise. Uh, I'm not making this up, folks. <laughs> This is true. You can look it up. It's hypocrisy. Thy name is climate change denial. Um, what about the solution? Well, one solution, you know, so if we can agree that we need to do something about the problem, and I think that's where our politics are headed. I actually think we, there is an emerging consensus that climate change is real and human caused, and, and the debate, you know, ahead of us is going to be about what we do. Uh, now, there's some who say, well, why don't we just massively interfere with the global climate system, which we don't understand perfectly, um, in some other way, and maybe we'll get lucky and it will offset the effects of uh, global warming. Um, the title uh, of our chapter on geoengineering in the book is uh, Geoengineering or What Could Possibly Go Wrong? <laughs> um, and it is, it's, it, it is the uh, principle of intended uh, consequences at work. Uh, we could easily end up with a Greenland that warms up even faster. <laughs> you melt the Greenland ice sheet uh, even faster um, if we engage in some of these schemes because you might lower temperatures in some place but you could actually warm them in other places. There are all these uncertainties that tell us, you know, this is probably not the way to go. The real solution um, is to stop this problem at its source, which is the continued burning of fossil fuels and the CO2 that's building up in our atmosphere. But there are some 
prominent people who've said, you know, it's just an engineering problem, like uh, Rex Tillerson, our former Secretary of State, also former CEO of ExxonMobil. He might have uh, a bit of a bias in his approach to uh, thinking about solutions to climate change. Let's continue to burn fossil fuels and elevate ExxonMobil profits, but we'll do other things to try to offset it. Um, probably not a good idea. The real path forward, we're on that path, okay? Paris, Paris Agreement, monumental agreement. Um, every country in the world, save one, the U.S., if, if Donald Trump does indeed make good on his threat to pull out of Paris, we would be the only country in the world um, not signed on to Paris if all the countries uh, keep their commitments to Paris. Um, and the U.S. could actually meet its obligations under Paris with or without Donald Trump, just because of what's happening at the state level, the municipal level, what cities are doing, what uh, companies are doing. We may in indeed meet our obligations whether or not Trump formally pulls out. Um, and I won't say anything more about that. Um, that agreement, Paris gets us halfway to stabilizing warming at two degrees Celsius or less to that dangerous level of warming. So it doesn't solve the problem, but it gets us on the path where we can see a few years from now ratcheting up those agreements and ultimately we can see a path forward to keeping warming below dangerous levels, but there is a great urgency uh, to acting, of course. And we've run into a wall, Donald Trump's wall. It's the wall between him and the reality of climate change. Um, and we will indeed all pay for it. Um, so we have this challenge, you know, in the era of Trump, uh, where we have a chief executive for the first time who actually denies the science of climate change um, and has appointed uh, to his cabinet, um, you know, a, a, a scorched earth squad, what I call a dream team of climate change deniers and fossil fuel industry uh, lobbyists. Um, there is also opposition to that agenda. Um, I've spoken out um, in the House of Representatives. I spoke at the March for Science a year ago, uh, marched at the front of the line. Um, and I know what you're, you're thinking. You're looking at that and, and you're thinking, who's that guy with Mike Mann? <laughs> that's, that's my good friend Bill Nye. Bill Nye was uh, there with me at the front of the line. Our voices matter, okay? Even in this oppressive atmosphere of a, of a, a presidency that is opposed to the science of climate change and action on climate and a House of Representatives that is currently run by those who deny climate change and refuse to act on it, we've learned over the last several weeks that the voices of the people uh, still matter. And I think we are witnessing a cultural tipping point right now um, in our view on common sense gun law reform. And if we can go through that tipping point moment now on that issue, we can do the same thing on climate change. Uh, but it won't happen if we don't continue to push forward. Tipping points don't happen without all of the work necessary to lead us to the point where it's possible to do that. I think that there's something profound about giving this lecture here in Cleveland, Ohio, because there was a tipping point in the public consciousness on pollution, on air and water pollution, when the Cuyahoga River caught fire. It actually caught fire a couple times um, in the early 1970s. Uh, now, uh, my understanding is that um, this uh, next year is the 50th anniversary of, the, of that last uh, the Cuyahoga River uh, catching on fire, and there's going to be um, uh, sort of uh, a uh, 
probably a fair amount of uh, publicity surrounding that. Um, and indeed, with Scott Pruitt's policies, it might actually catch on fire again um, on its 50th anniversary. But we did go through this cultural tipping point um, in our views on you know, environmental protection. We passed the Clean Air Acts and the wa Clean Water Acts under Nixon. Nixon founded the EPA. Reagan approved the Montreal Protocol. George H.W. Bush gave us cap and trade to deal with the acid rain problem. Um, this was not a partisan political issue uh, too long ago, and it's become one today. But in this era of Trump, there may be a silver lining. There may be a reemergence of a coalition of moderates in both parties working across party lines willing to move forward, willing to help us achieve that tipping point on the climate change problem. Um, but it won't happen if we don't lend our voices like these high school kids have been doing on the gun issue over the last few weeks. We need to make our voices heard. We need to make them heard at the voting booth. Um, Ohio is a pretty important state when it comes to voting. Uh, and uh, in less than 300 days, we have an opportunity to send a message that we don't like the direction that we're going in right now on climate, on the environment. We have an opportunity to change course, and, and that's very important. We do still have a voice in this matter, and I hope that we use that voice in the coming year. Uh, it's not an overstatement to say that the earth really does lie in the balance. Uh, so thank you very much, folks. Today we're enjoying a Friday Forum with Dr. Michael E. Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University and also the Director of the Penn State Earth System Science Center. We're about to begin the audience Q&A and we welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or our, or our webcast. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club and our staff will work it into the program. If you're asking a question here too, just raise your hand and our staff will find you and we ask you to keep your question brief and to the point so we can get to as many questions as possible. Holding our microphones today are Youth Forum Council Chair Teola Orsania and Content Coordinator Bliss Davis. May we have our first question please? This is an election year. I've been attending a number of uh, opportunities to ask candidates for office what they would do uh, specifically uh, regarding global warming and they don't have answers. And I am asking what specific asks can you think of at the federal, state, and municipal level? Thanks for the question. Um, it's, a, it's a very good and important question. What, what can we actually do? What can we uh, demand of our policymakers? Um, well, ultimately, we uh, need to internalize in the economy the damage that's done by the burning of carbon, by the, the CO2 that's being put into the atmosphere. It's doing damage, real damage to our economy. Um, it's, it's impacting us when it comes to food and water and national security, um, fighting wars in dangerous places because of uh, resource limitations that uh, have been exacerbated by climate change. It's what the national security community calls a threat multiplier. Uh, our national security community sees climate change as the greatest security threat that we face in the years ahead. Um, so we need to internalize that in the economic 
decision-making process. Um, we need a price on carbon. We need to level the playing field so that those sources of energy that aren't degrading our world um, and impairing our safety um, can compete more fairly uh, against uh, those that, um, that, that are threatening the climate and threatening the planet. Now, an argument can be made that market forces are already moving in that direction. Um, you know, the age of fossil fuels is ending. Um, it's something better has come along. It's called renewable energy, and the rest of the world recognizes that, and they're moving ahead. And to the extent that we don't follow along, we will fall behind in, with regard to the greatest economic revolution of this century. So it's going to happen, um, but it has to happen even faster. If we're going to avoid that dangerous 2 degrees Celsius, 3.5 degree Fahrenheit uh, warming threshold, uh, we've got to bring our emissions down faster than will happen if we just allow the market to, you know, try to solve it on its own. So we need a price signal. We need to put a price on carbon. Um, we need incentives for renewable energy. We need politicians who will support those policies rather than the policies of the powerful fossil fuel interests who too often fund their campaigns. And so I think this has to become a voting issue. And I think we have to ask these questions of our policymakers. Thank you. I was pleased to hear your remarks end with a focus on the concept of a coalition of moderates that really does reach across party lines because both sides uh, have their own echo chambers. We, we, we have ours uh, and, and there's a hazard of ridicule of those on the other side. Have you in your long lasting work on this topic explicitly explored how you change minds? Uh, and how you reach across to someone who isn't on your side and maximize the chance that that person will become on your side. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, you know, many of those who deny climate change, they're not the villains, they're not the bad guy. Um, they're victims of a massive disinformation campaign that has been carried out by fossil fuel interests, and, and we have to look at them in that way. Um, now, it has become the case that uh, you know, climate change has become uh, such a partisan political issue that it, it's really almost part of the tribal identity of conservatives today to deny that climate change is real. And that makes it very difficult because facts and figures, graphs alone, aren't going to change their minds when it's coming from sort of a deeper ideological place. Um, and the reality is that, you know, an ivory tower academic like me, um, you know, uh, I may not uh, be the best messenger. For, for some of those folks. So we, not, we need to find trusted messengers within their communities, like four-star generals, uh, like people from the business community, like evangelical, evangelical Christians, like my climate scientist colleague, uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who can connect with, with uh, audiences that some of us might not be ideal messengers for. Um, it's also important to sort of focus your energy and effort on where you can make a difference. Um, some of those folks are so hardened that it's going to be very difficult to change their mind and you could spend a lot of time and effort trying to do that and those resources might be better spent on what I call the confused middle. The people who genuinely are confused by you know what appears to be a debate but in reality isn't um, and simply leading them uh, it turns out to understanding the degree of consensus that there is within the scientific community it is a gateway sort of belief to them accepting what the science has to say. There's a fair amount of research that shows that just establishing, just 
helping them understand that this isn't actually widely debated in the scientific world, that this is the scientific consensus, can go a long way in sort of bringing them along. So uh, ultimately, um, you know, I think that uh, that's sort of the sweet spot for many of us in our communication and outreach efforts, but it is important to sort of try to cultivate uh, a variety of, of messengers who, who can speak to different communities and different constituencies. Thank you. Are some of our scientists starting to travel abroad to study this in countries where they, they will be more supported by funding? Well, this is what, um, you know, with the threat to science funding um, that was in uh, Trump's original budget, uh, uh, Emmanuel uh, Marcon actually tried to recruit American scientists. He said, we'll give you a million dollars. Come study climate change. We embrace the science here in France. And, and literally, you know, there are other countries that have been raiding uh, our scientists be because of the sort of formidable atmosphere that climate science finds itself in today. That having been said, um, many of you may have uh, read uh, a week ago, may have uh, seen that um, in the budget that has now been signed, most of those cuts don't appear. Um, our Republican Congress actually stood firm um, when it came to support of the National Science Foundation when it came to support of NOAA, when it came to the support of, um, uh, the, uh, um, of, of NASA. Um, the, each, of those, um, uh, e each of those institutions saw a, an increase in, in their budget. Um, EPA was the one that didn't. So they did go after the EPA, um, but, but they didn't actually go after much of the basic um, sort of scientific infrastructure. And so that gives us maybe a little bit of hope that there's still some goodwill when it comes to the role of science um, in this country, a recognition of, of what important role science and technology has played. Um, NASA, of course, you know, and the space mission, um, that, you know, I think there is still a deep level of appreciation and respect for science, even among those who, you know, might not seem like our, our best allies. Um, that means that we can probably weather the storm um, which is, if this goes on, eventually we will see a defunding of climate science and we will see the satellites, the climate satellites taken down. Um, but we can probably weather, you know, this, this one storm if we can get past it. And again, there's an opportunity to change direction in less than a few hundred days. I was just wondering if um, you've seen any um, good examples in our school systems of teachers being well-equipped to talk about climate change. Yeah, I have, and there's some groups that are specifically out there trying to help teachers because they're not communicating in a vacuum, in a neutral atmosphere. There's been a concerted effort by certain interest uh, groups to try to insert climate change denialism into the curriculum, into our uh, elementary schools and high schools, uh, much as was the case um, with evolution. Uh, we see the same sort of battle. In fact, a, a group that uh, was sort of emerged to try to fight the effort to, uh, in, to uh, introduce creationism into the uh, science curriculum, uh, the National Center for Science Education, uh, formerly led by Jeannie Scott, who's been very active in helping high school teachers in high schools fight these battles, including the famous Dover, Pennsylvania case, where the school board tried to insert creationism into the classroom, and, and science prevailed, uh, and NCSE played a really important role. Well, uh, some years ago, they decided to take on climate change as an issue as well, because they saw precisely the same sorts of 
the same modus operandi was being deployed um, with respect to climate change denial and inserting that into the classroom. Uh, a group um, that's actually based in Chicago uh, called the Heartland Institute, sounds great, but actually it's just a front group for fossil fuel interests and tobacco interests to dispute science that threatens their bottom line. And they actually sent out a uh, very glossy fake report um, promoting climate change denial to teachers across the country. And they have essentially unlimited resources. They get a lot of funding from the Koch brothers and other um, uh, billionaires uh, who um, you know, are, are willing to fund these efforts. So that battle continues. And we'll, we, we will be continuing to, to fight this effort. What could be more immoral than trying to mislead our children about a problem that they are the ones who bear the brunt of? Um, it, it's so fundamentally ethically misguided and amoral. Um, and fortunately, uh, they're not prevailing because the forces of science are pushing back. I'm a college student, and we've been covering climate change and climate change denial a lot in class. And we talked about how a lot of people are opposing the idea that climate change is real, not because they want to deny the science, but because they, do, they want to reduce government regulation and intervention by any means necessary. So my question is, how do you deal with people who are opposing climate change for reasons that have nothing to do with denying the science? Thanks. It's a great question, um, and it reminds me of my uh, friend James Inhofe, uh, senior uh, senator of Oklahoma, um, who has described climate change as the greatest hoax ever perpetrated. That was several years ago. We now know it was perpetrated by China. We learned that from Donald Trump. <laughs> but uh, long before that, uh, James Inhofe was uh, declaring climate change as the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people and introduced a snowball in the middle of winter onto the Senate floor as, as evidence <laughs> that climate change is a myth. It snowed in Washington, D.C. in the winter, therefore climate change can't be real. Um, what's, what's relevant here is um, in an interview a, a couple years ago, um, I, I think it was on MSNBC, um, he was asked about you know, his climate denialism. He said, I used to believe the science until I learned how much it would cost. <laughs> that gives us some very deep insight and it is exactly as you describe it. Um, we have to recognize that sometimes it's not about the science. And it doesn't matter. You can come at somebody with as many facts and figures and graphs as you want. It'll be dismissed as fake news. <laughs> um, uh, that won't carry the day. But you get a four-star general talking to them about how you know, we're losing troops um, worldwide, uh, how national security, how ISIS arose um, in, in Syria in an atmosphere of conflict that was created by an unprecedented drought, the worst drought in at least 900 years, the paleoclimate folks tell us. Um, so you frame it in terms of something that uh, you know, conservatives might care, really care about, uh, national security, uh, business. We're losing you know, more than a trillion dollars a year to climate-related uh, disasters. Um, the reinsurance industry recognizes that this is a fundamental uh, threat to us. Uh, again, it's about finding trusted messengers for those communities because they may not, you know, they'll dismiss, you know, you know, uh, the uh, pronouncements of a Penn State professor, but th they might listen to a four-star general. They might listen to an evangelical minister. They might listen to somebody, you know, a captain of industry, uh, a CEO of a major company. Um, and that, again, gets back to this idea that we have to cultivate um, a variety of uh, trusted sources um, that can be effective with different communities and, and constituencies. Thanks. Yeah.
Uh, thank you so much for your commitment to this work. Um, you really touched on my initial question, which, which was about engaging people in, in the principles and practices of this work. But want to move to thinking about, um, I love your use of visual materials to illustrate the work. How uh, useful or valuable has that been in spreading the messaging about climate change and resilience practices? Well, thanks very much. Um, you know, there, there's something about the very fractious nature of our discourse today. We've become so divided along partisan uh, political lines. Um, and uh, we know to the point where we trap ourselves in echo chambers when a previous gentleman, you know, sort of alluded to this. So we get trapped in these bubbles of epistemic closure um, that are impenetrable to information from uh, outside of our, our own sort of sphere of influence. Um, and that's a real challenge. You know, when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire back in the early 1970s, we didn't have that balkanization. You know, when, when Walter Cronkite said that's the way it was on March 30, 20, you know, 2018, if you were around today, um, we would all have accepted that's the way, those were the facts, and we could disagree about what we thought the implications were and what the solutions were to the problems that those facts imply but we could agree upon a, a common set of facts. Um, today, we no longer have that. Um, we have alternative realities, fake news, alternative facts. Um, it makes it very difficult to find consensus on an issue like climate change when, when some people won't even accept the, the basic facts of the scientific community. They'll dismiss it as, um, when I did my, uh, when I testified uh, to Lamar Smith, the chair of the House Science Committee, a climate change denier, um, a year ago in Washington, D.C., um, I, I uh, quoted the, the magazine Science. Um, uh, it, it had, there was an editorial that had sort of criticized him for um, seeing the chairmanship as an opportunity to exercise his partisan political agenda rather than sort of forward, the, you know, than, uh, rather than support the, the case for, for science in this country. And I read that to him. He said, but that's a biased source. Science magazine, that's a biased source. And, yeah, I get biased uh, towards science, <laughs> I guess. Um, uh, so where am I going with this? Where am I going with this? In this atmosphere, there's a reason that it's the late show comics who are able to talk about issues that nobody else can talk about, because they're, they're finding a side door. The, the front door is closed, folks. We've got to find a side door. One of those side doors is satire and, and humor. And, and sometimes you can talk about something. You know, Colbert can talk about things that <laughs> nobody could talk about on the cable news networks or on the evening news programs. Um, and, and thus it is, I think, with, with Tom Toll's cartoons. Um, and so the opportunity to work with him to use that as a, as a new sort of novel vehicle for communicating the, uh, the science of climate change was, was very appealing to me because I, I, it, it's part of looking for those side doors. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, we represent about a quarter of the world's output. Um, what can you tell us about uh, uh, China, India, where s some of those cities are in uh, Beijing and other places are unlivable? Uh, and we know that they're doing some things, but is it, are they going fast enough? And are, is, <clears throat> are you reaching them in some way? Yeah, th thanks for the question. Um, you know, it's ironic because one of the uh, common talking points uh, that you find among those opposed to taking action on climate is that, uh, well, you know, China and India aren't doing anything, so why should we do anything about it? And that was sort of true 10 years ago. It just ain't true uh, today. 
Um, China is decommissioning coal-fired power plants. And they've flooded the global market with cheap solar panels to the point where Trump has uh, had to slap a tariff on Chinese solar panels to stop the penetration of renewable energy <laughs> into the United States. Uh, that's not coincidental. So China is taking some real leadership, and in part because of what you allude to. How can you not understand um, the threat of environmental degradation if you live in and witness what's happened in, in Beijing with air quality um, and the huge healthcare costs that are arising from that? So China understands in a very visceral way um, you know, what we understood in the 1970s, what we understood when the Cuyahoga River <coughs> caught fire, when we had that moment. Well, China's had that moment as well in more recent years. And so they're out ahead. Um, now, you know, for a while, uh, there was a, a really uh, a favorable trend where we saw global carbon emissions had, had remained flat for several years uh, in a row. Um, and, um, and in part, that was due to the progress being made by China and by other countries in Europe. Um, there's this real move away from uh, fossil fuel energy towards renewable energy in, in many uh, of those countries. Um, but last year, we actually saw it tick up a little bit. So we're not there yet. Um, and China has maybe backed off a little bit from the direction. Um, you know, they said they wouldn't. They said, we don't care what Trump says, we're still committed. But Trumpism has provided them now with an excuse to not work quite as hard as they were working before. And so, you know, how can we expect the rest of the world, the developing world, to make these changes when we had two centuries of free access to cheap, dirty fossil fuel energy? Who are we to tell them that they don't have the same right if we don't have our own house in order? Um, and so I think it starts with moral leadership uh, here by uh, those of us in the United States and our elected leaders. Um, and again, an opportunity, less than 300 days, to change direction in terms of our political representation. Thank you. Hi, so you mentioned the Cuyahoga River. Um, and next year, in fact, we are celebrating that, the 50th anniversary uh, of the, the last time the river burned, uh, June 22nd, 2019. Everyone should save that date. Um, so you know, we, we are asking the question, can we make this maybe the largest environmental sustainability event in the country that year? Because it, do, it is a national story, obviously yeah. a local story, yeah. but national. And it connects, you know, with, through local action and federal policy, we can make big change. And obviously that's important these days. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, one, if you see big potential there here in Cleveland next year. And if so, you know, how best to use that anniversary to kind of elevate this conversation um, around climate and, and, you know, environmentalism? Thanks for that, that question. Um, you know, we... Evolution sort of led us to, to learn through storytelling and narratives. And that, that's the most effective way to communicate, is through stories um, and metaphors. Um, and, and here we, we have one, this remarkable metaphor for the uh, effect of unrestrained uh, pollution of our water and, and atmosphere. So I think there's an amazing narrative story that surrounds what happened um, back in the 1970s here, and it would be a huge lost opportunity to try not to, to not try to make it a teaching moment um, for the rest, not just the rest of the country, but the rest of the world. So 
and I, I'd be happy to talk to folks if there's some role that I can play in trying to help facilitate that. I think it's a, I think it's, it's a really important opportunity that we don't want to lose. The cartoons are wonderful. And along those lines, there's a growing body of psychological research on how to more effectively frame climate change messaging. Um, for example, Per Espen Stokneys has a wonderful book and wonderful TED talk on how to more effectively communicate to persuade people and overcome barriers. I was wondering, do leading climate scientists like you communicate with the psychologists about how do we talk more effectively about this and frame our message? Thank, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, we see psychologists a lot. Um, <laughs> but um, no, actually, a, a good friend of mine is, is a, a practicing psychiatrist who's written about sort of the psychology of, of climate change denial. You might recognize the last name, uh, Lisa Van Susteren. And yes, it is Greta's sister. And Thanksgivings are interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, there are a number of folks, and Lisa is one of them, um, who are very much looking at that intersection, sort of the psychology of denialism, um, and, uh, and trying to help that inf inform the communication uh, efforts. Um, you know, you, you can't communicate effectively without, um, without working with sociologists and political scientists and psychologists and people who study, you know, and, and media um, studies folks, uh, people who study this stuff for a living. I study science for a living. <laughs> you know, it would be presumptuous of me to think that I've got all the answers when it comes to communicating science. But I do my best to, to work uh, with other people who can help provide me with the advice and the tools um, and approaches um, that are most effective. So absolutely, that the psychology community and the psychiatry community is, is is one of those communities with which there is a pretty active uh, conversation taking place when it comes to climate messaging. Thanks. Yeah, my question is, so sometimes we feel a little bit um, ineffective or impotent about making change. Uh, what's the best personal conduct thing that we can do as stewards of our environment? Um, and then also, to um, kind of leverage our intent with money, what's, where's the best place to donate to? Thanks very much. Uh, Penn State University, of course. Um, <laughs> um, wait, 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 the first part of your question. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> elaborate again, because I forgot the context for that. Uh, climate change, if we want to combat climate change, and we're all contributing to climate yeah. change as we breathe. What, what is the one thing we can do? That, yeah, uh, what's yeah, maybe yeah. the most effective yeah. thing we can do? Yeah, so voting. Voting. Um, there are all sorts of things that we can do to try to reduce our own uh, individual carbon footprints, and many you know, of those things are, are no-brainers. They save us money, they make us healthier. Um, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, um, and when we you know, act responsibly. It sets a message, uh, sends a message to our friends and family members and, and schoolmates. And, um, and so that's really important. But that alone isn't enough because you or I, neither you or I can actually pass climate change legislation. Uh, only our elected leaders can do that. And so we have to make sure that we elect politicians who are willing to represent 
our interests rather than those powerful vested interests. Um, one of the things that I thought was really novel um, with this, um, with the current movement, with these high school kids in the wake of the Parkland shooting, um, and and just it's just remarkable how how these high school kids have seized the media narrative in a way that you know defies um, sort of the laws of money and influence um, uh, somehow, and it's the moral authority that they carry that has allowed them to do that. That still matters. Moral authority still matters. Um, the voices of our children still matter. And one of the things that they've done, which I thought was so clever, um, is that uh, they, they now have a contract um, that uh, kids are supposed to get their parents to sign. It's a contract to vote on this issue, to vote and to vote on this issue, because those kids can't vote but they can demand that their parents vote in their interests. And why wouldn't their parents want to vote in their interests and their grandparents? So voting and, and getting people to vote, collective action, and doing the things you can do and talking about it with your friends and family, all those things matter. Um, we need to sort of be pressing on all cylinders here. Um, there's no one size fits all uh, sort of uh, solution here. We have to do all those things, but, you know, but, 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 Holding our elected leaders accountable is absolutely critical. I, I already said Penn State. No, uh, you know, there are a whole bunch of, um, I, I love the work that uh, Union of Concerned Scientists uh, is doing, helping defend scientists and defend science. I love the work that the Sierra Club is doing under Michael Broom's uh, leadership. Um, uh, the Sierra Club was once, like, I, I lived in California, went to school in California. It was sort of thought of as one of our more conservative non-governmental organizations, but they've been out in front on the climate issue for years now, and, and, and that's in part due to just Michael is sort of this, um, you know, this uh, cult of personality. And, and, and so the Sierra Club is doing great work. Um, you know, EDI, all the non-governmental organizations help them out, contribute to them, help them do their work. Um, that's, that's important as well. Your focus has been um, oh, here. sorry. <laughs> your, fo your focus has been largely on um, fossil fuel extraction and the burning of fossil fuels and the contribution that that makes to climate change. But there's also a lot of evidence that our agricultural practices um, alone are a huge uh, contributor to the the carbon in the atmosphere and climate change, and it, which brings along a whole new set of roadblocks to trying to change those habits. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, thanks for the question. Have you seen the film Cowspiracy? Yes. Okay, so it's wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what you say is true. It is important. You know, it's a piece of the pie. Agricultural emissions, the eating of meat. It's it's a piece of the pie. Um, Cowspiracy sort of conveyed this idea that it was the dominant source of greenhouse gases, um, you know, more than fifty percent, and and that was based actually on some erroneous math. Um, it was looking at not looking at the carbon that's going back into the ground, just looking at the carbon that's, you know, so they didn't have sort of their math balanced. And so it's much smaller than that. That film conveyed the idea that this is the single greatest contributor. And it's not. The single greatest con contributor is the burning of fossil fuels for energy, for transportation. Um, but, you know, our personal choices matter. And it is absolutely true that you can greatly reduce your own individual carbon footprint if, just going from beef to chicken, um, going from, if you feel like you have to eat meat, going from chicken to seafood, and then 
vegetarian. Um, each of those steps is like a factor, almost an order of magnitude. So we can make a real difference in agricultural practices, being smart about agriculture. It's part of the solution. Um, we have to change our behavior across all sectors of life if we're really going to tackle this problem. There's no one magic bullet, and our choices about food and agriculture are part of it. But if you, the lion's share is our continued burning of fossil fuels, and that's, we have to keep that in focus in particular. Thank you. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum with Dr. Michael E. Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University and Director of the Penn State Earth System Science Center. Our forum today is the Stanley and Hope Edelstein Forum on the Environment, made possible by a generous endowment gift from Mr. and Mrs. Edelstein. And that brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you, Dr. Mann. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.